Hey everyone, this is Ann Greeny, and welcome to Capital Connections. In this podcast, we will talk to successful investors and entrepreneurs about the state of their industry and how their network influenced their success. This podcast was brought to you by Affinity. Affinity helps teams manage and grow their networks by unlocking introductions to key decision makers and auto-populating their pipelines to increase deal flow. Affinity's patented technology structures and analyzes millions of data points across emails, calendar, and third-party sources to offer you the tools you need to discover untapped opportunities. In industries where success is contingent upon maintaining high-touch relationships, Affinity allows you to get deeper insights into your network and finally eliminate manual data entry. To learn more, visit us at affinity.co. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Everyone and welcome to another episode of Capital Connections. I'm really excited about our guest today. She is a founding partner at 8VC and a serial entrepreneur. Prior to 8VC, she served as the executive director of business development and operations at a New York family office where she incubated and invested in a number of businesses. Most notably, she co-founded a direct-to-consumer healthcare company that has helped millions of Americans afford their prescription medications. She is also the co-founder and executive chairman of a women's health company called Monthly Gift. Please join me in welcoming Kimmy Scotty. Kimmy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And hi, everyone. It's so nice for you guys to join on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. We are, we are excited to chat. Um, so first off, you started as an entrepreneur very early, uh, high school, in fact, um, and you started a jewelry, jewelry line with your sister, I believe. Um, no, by myself, my, my sister and I started the healthcare company, the women's health company together. Oh, okay. And so what, what, where did the idea come from to create a jewelry line uh, yeah. in high school? So I'll tell you what, I, um, I was doing all sorts of odd jobs, like, like all of us do in high school, like babysitting. And I was working at the concession stand in a, in like a public pool, like a um, pool you could like paid you to go for the day. Um, and I realized that I needed to detach uh, money from hours. I was like, I need to do something with my time that it, that makes the hour worth more. And I'm very handy and crafty. I really love making things. And I, I always loved making jewelry. I had a real knack for it since I, was a, since I was a little kid. My grandmother would tell you a story that I made her a necklace and she wanted it two inches longer. And so I, I counted the beads that it, would, that it would take to make it two inches longer and I charged her for the beads. And I was like seven. <laughs> and so she was like, oh, okay. Um, and so I always had this kind of uh, talent for, for making things with my hands. And I, I would tell you today, I still define myself very much as a maker. And I wanted to come to New York City. I, I, I'm from Queens um, and I was going to high school and suffer and I want to come to New York City for school and I knew I would need some money to do that and I, that it, babysitting and hourly work at the pool concession stand flipping burgers wasn't going to cut it. Um, and so I came into the city with my mom and we were in we were buying beads and, you know, and findings and stuff from the jewelry from the jewelry stores and it started to pour and I made a necklace and I put it on and I really loved it. I really love this piece. It was all made of Czech glass. And I left the store when it stopped raining and a woman stopped me on the street. And she said, oh, I love your necklace. Where did you buy it? And I said, oh, I'm a designer and I made it. <laughs> and so just like on the spot, I was like, oh, I'm a designer, I made this. 
And she said, how much? And I, I like quickly knew in my mind, I knew what I spent on the beads and I multiplied four X. Um, and I sold it to her and she was like, Oh, I want it. I would like it now. I was like, Oh, okay, great. I just took it off my neck and gave it to her. And it made me a, it, you know, it was, it made my business. It started the spark for what became, you know, a business I ran for almost seven years. Oh my God. And you had a ton of success with that. Like they ended up selling your necklaces at Bloomingdale's. Yeah. yeah. I had and I heard Project Runway as well. It was, it was on Dan Vosovic's runway. Um, I made all the hair pieces for his show, uh, which was, we, we knew each other from FIT. It was so fun. Oh, that's so cool. And so you started in high school, took it to college. You, as you said, you went to FIT, which is Fashion Institute of Technology. I did. And so when you went there, what were you thinking? Because you already had this like entrepreneurial success. You knew a little bit about the industry. What did you want to do when you went there? So I, like I said, I always define myself as a maker. I thought when I was building my jewelry business, my thought was that I, I loved building a fashion business. That's what I, I, cause I loved building that business. It was so fun for me. I really enjoyed it. It was, there was a lot of heart about it. You're, there's a lot of rejection in design work, um, which no one tells you. And it's hard to learn at 15 that that's the case. You show somebody something and they're like, I don't like this. You're like, okay, great. I'll go home and cry about that now for a little while. And so it was an interesting dynamic, you know, starting that business. And I thought, oh, if I'm going to be a designer and that's what I'm going to, I'm going to keep building design businesses, I should go to design school. And it was interesting because then I got there and I went, I was in school for jewelry design for a year. And I was like, you know, I don't think I need to learn this in school. I think what I need to learn are, are more business oriented things. I need to take business classes. And so I actually switched my major into advertising and marketing communications and then later into production management. And I ended up getting degrees in both um, at FIT. Um, but it was an interesting place to be because everyone knew exactly what they were. Um, you know, you go into FIT um, as a fashion designer, as a jewelry designer, as an interior designer, what you, you, you have to designate, you know, your role because you're on a very um, specific path and all of your classes, you know, as, aside from a select few really focus on that. And so I really thought that that's what I was going to do when I went in for jewelry design. It's very hard to switch majors. You actually have to drop out and reapply into your new major, which is, which I did twice and, um, was, you know, a kind of a grueling process. Um, but it was an, it, definitely an interesting one. I certainly did not think I was going to, um, be in venture capital when I went to FIT. Yeah. <laughs> I know, seriously. And after FIT, you actually worked at a New York, a family office in New York. I did. And you were incubating companies there. What was the story bet between how you you graduated and ended up there? This is this is actually such a funny story and interesting story. So, I knew by the time I was I was graduating that what I loved about building my jewelry business was the business, not necessarily making jewelry. Um, I learned very quickly that I didn't want to I didn't want to make things with my hands all day. That was not necessarily um, the type of business I wanted to build. And you know, this is 2007. Um, Facebook is new, you know, on the new side. Amazon is just picking up. It's selling books, but it's you know, it's still new. Um, you know. I, the iPod's new, all these things are new. And so I started saying out loud, I'm gonna build technology companies. I wanna build technology companies. And I kept saying it to my friends. And I had a, a very dear friend, I still have a very dear friend, Marissa, 
and she went to she went to Harvard and she graduated the year before I did and she knew what things things were that I didn't know like she knew what private equity was and family offices were and venture capital she knew what all these things were and I had no context for them I didn't grow up with um, a family that had you know that you know had gone to college everyone or like had really uh, understood business so no one was able to really lay these things out for me um, and she went to a dinner party she, she actually snuck into a dinner party she said she was volunteering um, at this billionaire's house on the Upper East Side and he picked her out right away because it was a very small dinner party and he knew she, that she didn't belong and he was like oh what are you what the f are you doing in my house he literally said to her and she said Oh, I'm volunteering, and and she's he's like we're not having any volunteers. Everyone here is paid. <laughs> he's like all the all the help here is paid. No one's no one's volunteering. Um, but why don't you pull up a chair and tell me what you're really doing here? And really, Alexandra Pelosi was at dinner, and she wanted to meet her, and that's why she snuck into dinner. And so he let her stay. Um, and he had just sold a company and for uh, seven hundred fifty million dollars, and he was opening his own family office and was like come work for me and she she was working in banking at the time she was like i'm working in banking i have a great job she was trading commodities and she's like i'm not going to come work for you but what do you want to do and he said i need to find a young entrepreneur to help me build technology companies and she said i have just the girl for you and during that dinner i was at her i was at her mom's bedside her mom uh, had been diagnosed with breast cancer and was at sloan and i went to sit with her at the hospital so marissa could leave I was like doing uh, my my final projects like next to her bed, basically hanging out with her mom. And so when she came back into the hospital, she's like, I think I found you a, a job. Um, and I had been interviewing at like Chanel and Ferragamo and like all the big designers, but I was like not that compelled by what the offering was. Like what what was I gonna do there? I was gonna like, you know, do PR for Chanel. Like that's the, where they wanted to stick me, you know? And I was like, no, this is not really, this is not really for me. Like some junior girl running around samples. I was like, that's not what I want. And so I went to his office um, a couple days later with a pink resume, literally pink, uh, in, a, in a suit I couldn't afford. I went to Prada and bought a suit. Um, but that was like not a suit suit. It was like really funky looking and they were probably looking at me like this girl is 10 heads. Like, what is she even doing here in this like tie dye outfit, um, with, with her pink resume? It's like, is it scented? I don't know. Like, um, and they hired me. They, I was like, listen, I can build things. Like that's my skill set. is I'm a maker and I can make, I can do business or I can make things with my hands or I can make a absolute disaster or a killer meatball, but I can make things. And they bought into that. And so they hired me to, to come on and work specifically on works by Nicole Williams, which is a media company. And I think to them, they thought, oh, it's media. It's not that far from fashion. She can probably do this. And I ultimately was there and we built like seven more companies while I was there. And it was a really interesting um, experience. And I, I was there all the way um, until the end of 2014. Wow. Like in years. wow. And one of the companies you built was a healthcare company that helped create a prescription discount. Yeah. Uh, it was discount card for the uninsured, yeah. right? The un and underinsured. Exactly. And so we, and we, we save people a lot of money on their prescriptions. So, you know, we were, this is like an interesting, this is an interesting detail about like following data in your everyday uh, work and you can always, you know, you can always apply these things. We were actually building a different company at the time. So hmm. we were working on the, iP the iPad was new. It was like 2009 
and we had started something that was like the first digital magazine product for the iPad. Hmm. And it was optimized for the iPad. You could flip the pages, but there was video and sound and you could click to buy. One of the things I found frustrating about um, magazines on the iPad, and I actually still think it's annoying today because they're still not optimized well, um, is that you can't click to buy the things. They still have phone numbers next to them. So I'm like, if you flip through a Vogue or something like that, it's like, oh, this dress call for pricing. I'm like, click to buy. Like I'm, I'm on a digital platform. Why can't I just do this? And we would, so we, we actually ended up making like 10 magazine titles. One of them was health oriented and it was selling like crazy. We were like, you know, run rating, like over 20 million in revenue, you know, and by the end of our first year or beginning of our second year. And we were so excited about this business. And when we started to dig down into the data, we could see the healthcare title was outselling other things. Um, but people were only flipping to like page 12. And I'm like, why are people buying this magazine flipping to page 12? Well, we didn't, we didn't sell traditional um, advertising. We didn't, we didn't sell traditional advertising. We took links down from Linkshare and Commission Junction, made our own ads, and then you could, you could click through and we would make affiliate fees on, on whatever was in those ads. Uh, how interesting. Yeah, it turns out one of those ads was a prescription discount and people were just flipping to it and printing the page. And the way they were finding out about it was, you know, someone saw this prescription discount product that we had pulled down from like Commission Junction or something. And they, um, they wrote about it on like senior uh, savings boards. Like, oh, if you get this magazine, you can buy this thing and you can buy this magazine for $12 and you'll save X dollars every time you buy a generic prescription. And so we ended up folding that entire business um, into a prescription discount card product. And we, we institutionalized that product and we ended up, you know, you know, sending that product to hundreds of millions of households across the country. And it was an extremely uh, profitable and exciting business, which later sold to United Healthcare. Oh, wow. That's so, and so was the entire product was incubated within this family office? Yes, entire entire product. We we actually did a joint venture with one of one of the big pharmaceutical uh, benefit managers, um, and it was so it was a partnership. Um, but it was the entire thing was incubated inside the family office. We were twenty eight employees, um, doing over a hundred million a year in profit, and it's incredible business. Um, and ultimately, it's it's what you know sort of gave it, it's it's how I sort of got bit by the healthcare bug. I was like. Why am I around selling like trying to sell digital magazines in a shrinking industry when healthcare is like where you could really do some damage? It's the like one of the largest industries in the in the world. It's growing every year. Um, you know, it's there's so many compelling opportunities to build technology, interesting technology, interesting consumer yeah. technology as well. Um, and it's what made me interested in healthcare investing. Oh, how fascinating. And I know, was it after that or while you were at VC that you also co-founded Monthly Gift? And that one was with your sister, correct? Yeah, sister. <laughs> exactly. At the, it was literally at the same time. We put the app, the Monthly Gift app went live in the app store and 8VC, you know, filed its Form D basically the same day. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I think it's such, a, it's such a smart product because as a female, that is the one thing you just do not, it's like going to the gas station. You just don't want to have to do it. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to have to go purchase these products constantly. And it's just a service, not a product. That's how I always felt about it. But it's also, it's also another interesting thing about following data. We came out um, with Monthly Gift 
um, just, you know, sort of unfortuitously, honestly, at the same time as a number of organic tampon products launched. Um, the interesting thing is organic tampons are not safer. This is a lot of information about tampons for what I'm sure there's a lot of men in this chat. Um, but, but we should step back and say what, just to make sure everyone knows, yeah, uh, so men need to know too, what monthly gift is and yeah. why it is so revolutionary. So I'll, I'll tell you what it was and I'll tell you what it is today. So monthly gift was a subscription service for feminine care products for tampons, pads, and liners that you could deliver right to your door. And it was priced uh, super competitively to the market. So $10 would get you 36 products in a box um, and you could pick the product. So these, for all you men out there, you don't know, these products aren't sold in a blend and lots of women use mo more than one kind of product, more than one size, more than one type. And we let you choose size, type, and, uh, and mix them all in a box for 10 bucks, which was a great price, great product. Um, and then we managed your cycle through a period tracking app. Now there's lots of period tracking apps, but at the time there weren't so many. Um, and ours was cute. <laughs> really fun, really fun to use. Um, and so we had this great product. Um, but it's very hard to explain to someone that something organic is not better than something conventional. Um, you know, when you go to Whole Foods and you're like, oh, it says conventional strawberries and organic strawberries, and they're a dollar more, you're happy to buy this the organic strawberries that are a dollar more. So we've been trained by the, by, you know, the consumer market to think organic is better um, and that it should be more expensive. God's honest truth is that it's actually cheaper to make um, in this case for feminine care products. It's actually cheaper to make them, easier to make them. Um, and it is, uh, they're not as good for you as the conventional. And so, yeah, but it didn't matter because it made marketing this product near impossible. Uh, we would, you know, continue, we would market and market and market to, until you're blue in the face and CACs were going up and uh, that's customer acquisition costs for, for those of you non-marketing people. Um, and we were like, okay, well, the market wants something organic. Um, nothing organic in the feminine care space on the, on the disposable side, so no tampons, pads, and liners, are good enough. We don't, we're not going to make a less safe product just because the market's asking for it, right? It's like one of those faster horses concepts. Like if people got what they wanted, they would have gotten faster horses, not cars. Um, and so we're like, we're not going to give into that. That seems silly because we built, we believe in technology. And so we bought a period underwear company. Mm. My sister and I, we were going to make a period underwear. And then we found the, we were like, you know what? We can't make a better product than this, this product, dear Kate, that exists. Um, and so we reached out and we ended up buying their company from them. Um, and so we run that together today. Oh, how interesting. So yeah. it was a, it was a little M&A, a little SAS at the end of the day, yeah. like, and, exactly. and that's, that's where I thought it was so innovative at the beginning is just, you know, this is a product you don't want to go purchase and having oh. it just come to your door. Yeah. Um, all of us have had, uh, females have had the conversation with significant others to go pick it up and no one wants to. So <laughs> I think it makes a, a ton of sense. So, and that company is still running today. It's still running today. And so you can, you can either go to monthlygift.com or dearkates.com. Um, but it's, it's running today. And actually, so my sister runs the business. Um, my mom is helping out, you know, it's a, it's, it's like a family affair now. And did you raise venture capital to get that started in the beginning? We do, we raised friends and family, raised a small friends and family round. Um, and then we raised some, uh, venture and eight BCs and investor as well. Um, so our seed fund is invested in that business. Um, they actually finance the 
the purchase of Dear Kate's. Um, that's that's at that point that they invested. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's trucking along. I have to ask, like in that process of going and pitching a company like that, that does make a lot of people squeamish who don't deal with it monthly. Yeah. Um, what was that? Was it was it challenging to get people? So challenging. Oh yeah, it was so challenging. I'll tell you, I'll tell you of some like horror stories. Um, we, I would go in, we, my sister and I, you know, all ready to pitch. And then that an investor would bring in their assistant. They'd be like, oh, you know what? Let me just get my assistant. She's a woman. She's going to know. And I, and then finally I got set up. I'm like, do you always let your assistants make your investing decisions here? And then they're like, oh, I really have to ask my wife. I've got to, I'm going to call my wife and my daughter. And I'm going to ask them about it. If this is something they would use. I, and I'm like, you always make your wife make your investing decisions. Maybe I should meet with, be meeting with her. And they, you know, finally, you know, we ended up with investors who were great and supportive, but it's a really challenging um, thing to pitch feminine care because men don't, in all honesty, especially then, now I feel like the, the market softened the people up a bit. Um, but at that point, it was like, la, 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 like, I'll give you the money if you just stop saying period to me. <laughs> it's one of those taboo conversations that no one really wants to talk about, but no. it's such a, a, such a need in the market. Um, and so as you transition to become a venture capitalist now at 8VC, um, how is that kind of, has that mindset of, you know, being a, a female that's had to go pitch a product that could potentially be taboo, but fills a gap. How does that change your mindset and being now a venture capitalist hearing these pitches? Yeah. So I think, you know, I think it's interesting. I would say the one way that pitching as a woman um, like informed the way that I hear, um, invest, you know, investing ideas, um, and company ideas, company ideas is that I always take meetings with women when they ask. So it's, it might be, you could argue that, you know, sometimes it's, this is not a great use of time, but I actually think it is a great use of time because these women end up somewhere. Um, and so often I will get, you'll see as a female investor, you'll see an outsized number of pitches from female entrepreneurs. Um, and it's actually representative, like we, we actually, our rate of investing in female entrepreneurs is much higher than the average fund. It's like 10 X, the average fund it's because we see an outsized number of female founders because they're looking for a female investor. Um, they show up, you know, looking for someone who looks like them. Um, and I don't, and you know, you don't blame them. It's, you know, it's tribalism, you know, we're, we all do it. And they're just looking for someone who looks and feels like them. And so when, even when the company is outside of an area that we invest in, I let them know. I, re, I respond and I say, listen, such and such, this is outside of my investing um, area. We are not likely to write a check. But if you want to meet with me, I'm happy to take, them, take a meeting and I will give you feedback and I will listen to you and I will introduce you to the right investor. And I always pass them along to a handful of other investors who focus in their area, whether they're male or female, whatever it is, but we can help them, you know, with that sort of soft introduction to say, listen, I saw this idea. It's not for me. I thought it might be for you because of these reasons. Um, and that's, I would say that's the one, you know, one way um, that being a woman um, and an entrepreneur has changed the way I might spend, you know, spend a day um, as an investor. And you, you were one of the first women that I saw that took the pledge, I think it was a year or so more ago that about investing in females. Um, and so I, so I actually didn't take that pledge. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. So we, so it's, 
so this this is a I think something that a lot of um, women investors get wrong. Honestly, like we're looking for the best companies. Um, if we were if we didn't invest in male founders, then we wouldn't have been invested in in Affinity, right? Like okay. I want to I want to invest equally. You know, give everyone an equal opportunity and invest across male women with men women who have like you know who, however people identify. We want to we want to invest in the best possible businesses. Um, and that sometimes means male founders and this means female founders. Sometimes, you know, it, it, you know, it means unidentified, you know, however you want to, however you want to identify yourself. Um, but I think if you say, oh, we're going to invest in, in, in women founders specifically or only, mm -hmm. um, you're, you're cutting off too much of what, of incredible companies that okay. you can, that you can invest in. And, you know, I was sitting on a panel, um, last year with three female investors um, who all have funds that focus on female investors. And they're arguing with me on this panel. And I finally said, how big is your fund? Tell me how big your fund is. And each of you go ahead. And it was like $2 million, $10 million, $25 million, small funds for the most, obviously very, you know, very small funds, micro funds for all intents and purposes. And I'm like, that's why we don't, I'm not defining myself as somebody who invests in female founders alone. I can invest more money. I have invested more money in female founders and we have as a, as a firm than you have in any female founders with your entire fund because your fund's so small. Yeah. And if I was out in the world saying, I'm only going to invest in women, I'm only going to invest in women. I would have not been able to, to do that. We wouldn't have been able to raise, to raise as much capital likely. Um, and so I actually, I don't believe in um, defining I'm only investing in women. I'm only investing in this minority or that. I think if you just keep, you know, keep your eyes open and, and give those people, give those people, people like me as an entrepreneur, um, opportunities to, you know, to pitch you, you will invest it, you know, you will invest in them. And that's what's important. Absolutely. Um, and so when you joined 8VC, what, what was your biggest goal that you wanted to accomplish? You know, it's, it's so interesting. Um, you know, what I really wanted um, when I joined 8BC um, was to, you know, to invest in um, and help uh, shape the future, really. I want, I, you know, I knew the Formation 8 um, ethos and what their, you know, what their strategy was. I knew how um, Joe and Drew and, and Alex at the time, Jake was new to me still, um, thought about the the future and um, you know how technology really you know really would sh you know shape that and and the specific industries that they were interested in investing in um, industries that you know we define as powering society and I really wanted to be a part of shaping that future to be in the room for making for making that decision and and that's really what my goal was. That's great. Uh, I want to pivot now just to some quick fire questions, although you can uh, feel free to take as long as you as long as you wish on these. So first one being, are there any mentors that helped you along the way with your within your you know, career? Yeah. Um, yes. So a dear friend, it's actually so funny because she just left here, um, not. 45 minutes ago, um, because this is not just a mentor. She's a dear friend. She's like a sister. She's like a big sister to me. Um, Nicole Williams, um, you know, she's the first real female entrepreneur um, that I came across. I worked on her business with her when I um, was at the family office. Um, and she 
really, um, she's a career expert and a best-selling author, but she really helped me understand that I could both be myself and be a powerhouse in business, that I didn't have to like fit some form. Um, and there I had been, um, I had been kind of attacked uh, for being uh, so feminine and so warm um, by a by a male business partner of mine um, at the you know at this time I was I was very young I was like 21 22 and you know I was being my I was just being myself and I was getting a lot of damage done honestly I was you know doing really well um, and he cornered me in a conference room and he said um, can I swear sure he said he was like he put his he put his hand over my shoulder um and i was under a window so no one could see me on the inside of this room and he said you're just a little bitch and you're gonna respond to kimberly and you're gonna dress like an adult like you're gonna wear a navy blue suit every day and i said i'm gonna outlast you and no i'm not and i like ducked under his arm and i walked out the door but it it was really hard and really upsetting this is somebody i had to deal with every day not it was not like Oh, I just met them one time and I had to deal with them once. And, you know, she really helped shape for me that that was not the case, that I could really be myself. And if I wanted to wear a tutu while I was at work, I absolutely could and should. Um, and that that would help to, you know, define who I was specifically as a business person. Um, and without her, I really would, I, I think I probably would have fallen into line um, in some way. I would have tried to comply a bit. And she was like, absolutely not. She was like, you, you do exactly as you, as you like and you be exactly who you are and you keep doing what you're doing because you're, you're doing a great job and it really helped me. That's such a great message. Uh, next question is, if there was one thing that you could change about venture capital, what would it be? Um, one of the things I, is, it's like more about the landscape. Um, I would dispel the myth that building a company is sexy and easy. You, like you guys know, you're in the trenches, right? It's not easy and it is almost always not sexy. Um, and I often will, you know, be sitting with an entrepreneur and they just like want this like dream of coming out of their dorm room and having a billion dollar company. And I'm like, great, yeah, like I want that for you too, but this is a lot of hard work. And a lot of the time the, you know, the media loves to, um, loves to sort of hold up the, the overnight success. And it makes people, you know, misunderstand um, that this, this is an uphill battle and that that's the fun part. The, the yeah. challenges should be what you're enjoying. You're solving problems and fixing something all day. Why do you think it's gonna be easy? you know, and, and why should it be? It should be hard. If it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And we'd, you know, we'd all have, you know, Facebook sized companies or whatever. And so, um, I would, I would really like to dispel that, um, myth. And I have, of course, would love to see more women in the room all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. I always uh, make the comparison of working at a startup compared to a big company is like, riding jet skis on the ocean as opposed to a big cruise ship. Yeah. You're going to feel every bump and it's going to be a ride and super fun, but uh, you've got to have the stomach for, for, for that as well. I always say the hard part's the good part. Yeah, exactly. You know, I've built enough stuff now, you know, that I, you know, when you're like in the trenches and it's like your worst possible day, 
it's like, you know, success is on the other side of this and it's the, the hard parts, the good parts, the growth part. Yeah. Growth, growth isn't always, uh, doesn't always feel good. It's like growing pains or there's a, there's a reason we, we, uh, use the term. Um, so next question for you, any books that you recommend, especially, uh, books for entrepreneurs or books for, for finance? Yeah. Um, there's a few books I really love, uh, for, you know, if, for, if you're interested in venture, I love the e-boys book about the start of benchmark. Um, I think that's a great book, um, for entrepreneurs, one of my favorite um, books, a lot of people have, have read um, Fooled by Randomness by the same author um, is a book called Anti-Fragile. And I love this book and I love this word. I learned this word from this book. Um, people think, um, you know, fragile means breakable, but actually it doesn't just mean breakable. It means something that breaks under pressure. And so anti-fragile, you would think this is something that means unbreakable, but it's actually, it's not. The opposite of fragile means something that strengthens under pressure. And I feel that. I feel that way. I had, you know, a really challenging um, upbringing, um, really, you know, really challenging childhood. Um, great in a lot of ways, but really difficult in, in, in others. And my sister and I really define ourselves as anti-fragile. We're, we definitely strengthen under pressure. And I think this book um, is an incredible uh, read for entrepreneurs to remember that all the time. Um, and then I will give you one more book because I like three, um, a, a book that's like definitely not about entrepreneurship. This is really about life in general, the meaning of life. And I don't know if you guys have read it, but it's when breath becomes air. Um, and the author wrote this book, um, spoiler alert. He wrote this book while he was dying. Um, and he's a, he was a neuroscientist, neurosurgeon, incredible, uh, intelligent man and he basically, he wants to be a writer. And so he spends his early part of his life reading, writing, and that's really what he thinks he's gonna do. And his, um, his like both his, his father and his grandfather, I think were both um, doctors and he like didn't wanna go into medicine. And he, you know, uh, he ends up going into medicine and becoming this incredible writer through this process of uh, the end of his life. and it's, you'll, like, you won't put it down. You'll read, you'll read through the whole thing, but it's, it's gorgeous. And actually his wife finishes the book. Um, and so it's, it's gut, it's uh, gut wrenching. I read it. I like, I read it on one flight and then I read it again on the playa at Burning Man. Oh, and oh my God. Great read. Yeah. A great read for, for, for finding the meaning of life uh, on the playa at Burning Man. Yeah. You always got to be careful what books you read on a flight. I've definitely had that or what movies you sit there with like tear falling down your face. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a great Uh, read. Highly suggest it. Yeah. One more, one more question for you, given that you are a native East coaster, New Yorker, you're living in New York city now and haven't left during the pandemic. What is the one thing that you think is the most magical thing? Because New York City has been through some punches recently. What's the most magical thing about New York City to you? Yeah, okay. First of all, don't let anybody tell you New York is over. This whole idea that like you, I keep hearing people say, oh, New York is over, it's over, it's over. And I'm like, Pfft. I'm like, it's over for you, buddy. Get out of here. <laughs> like, you weren't supposed to be here, clearly. Um, and it was, cha- like, I will tell you, the beginning of this pandemic in New York was hard. It was, it was really challenging. We were really locked down in our apartments and, you know, you'd see if you went by the, I would like take walks and go by, you know, and walking by the hospital, you'd see like body trucks outside the freezer trucks that like 
when Central Park turned into a hospital and they like popped up tents or like the Javits Center, you know, popped up beds and they started rolling body trucks in, it really looked like the apocalypse here. And it was like the ugliest part of a, you know, of New York. It was like March so when it's like still cold. It was horrendous. It was really, really rough. But you could still see the, you know, the connection between people. You know, I would... I was like trying to figure out how to smile better with my eyes, you know, because we were wearing masks all the time. Um, and so I took to waving at people. Like when I walked by, I would just like wave at them. And that, that was the feeling here. It was like, okay, you're here. I'm here. We're obviously still, still together. And like, there is no better city in the world. There really, there really isn't. And there's no, you know, there's nowhere else you can get like pancakes at six, you know, at four in the morning. And you could like, you could still go to see a movie at that hour if you really wanted and or like you could find somebody to play scrabble with you in a bar like you like this is the best city this is the best city in the world and it's the best city because it's the best people it's like the grittiest toughest i was chatting with someone yesterday a friend who lived in new york moved to san francisco and now she's thinking of moving to austin or seattle she's like ready to go from san francisco too and she was like are you gonna move to austin or seattle or something and i was like i'm like no i'm like moving into a new apartment downtown which we're sitting in now and she's like, she's like, don't you want to get out of New York? It's so hard. And I'm like, yeah, but it's so rewarding. It's, yeah. so, it's so rewarding. It's like, what a, what a place. So, um, it, it is one of my favorite cities to visit. So I, I look forward to visiting you again after this. Uh, yeah. Once we can travel, once we can travel. Yeah, um, when you're ready to go, I will be here to take you all, all around. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Kimmy, for taking the time today. Really appreciate it. You have such an incredible story. And if someone wants to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? So you can email me. I'm just Kimmy at 8VC.com, K-I-M-M-Y. Um, or you can get me on Instagram. I'm like, if you want to get me in my DMs there, that's my like other fun place. And I'm just at Kimmy Scotty on Instagram, uh, K-M-M-Y-S-C-O-T-T-I. Um, but thank you so much. It's been so fun chatting with you guys. Um, and I just love what you're all doing at Affinity. We love, we love the product. And so I'm so excited uh, to be here with you today. This podcast was produced by Affinity's Senior Growth Manager, Faison Mehdi. Music was produced by Affinity's Engineering Manager, Rohan Sahai. This podcast was brought to you by Affinity. Affinity helps teams manage and grow their networks by unlocking introductions to decision makers and auto-populating pipelines to increase deal flow. Affinity's patented technology structures and analyzes millions of data points across emails, calendar, and third-party sources to offer you the tools you need to discover untapped opportunities. In industries where success is contingent upon maintaining high-touch relationships, Affinity allows you to get deeper insights into your network and finally eliminate manual data entry. To learn more, visit us at affinity.co or email us at marketing at affinity.co. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.